0: The name of our podcast, Tech Sequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives.
1: I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie
0: Vagel. Welcome to Tech Sequences. Earlier in July of 2023, a federal judge in Louisiana ruled that Biden administration officials could not communicate with social media companies about content moderation issues, and that doing so was reminiscent of, quote, an Orwellian ministry of truth. The ruling went largely unnoticed by the public, buried under a landmark Supreme Court decision on affirmative action, news of mass shootings in Baltimore and elsewhere. It was, however, celebrated by Republicans who see this as vindication of their claim that social media companies are silencing conservative voices. This claim was rooted in policies implemented by social media companies against misinformation and hate speech following the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections, as well as the COVID pandemic. As the policies were implemented, Republicans, especially those on the far right, claimed conservative voices were being unfairly targeted. Much of the content in question concerned election denialism, anti-vaccine falsehoods, and or conspiracy theories. However, there is little empirical evidence to support these claims. In fact, a 2021 New York University study found that social media platforms and their algorithms often actually amplify right-wing content. And even though an inherent assumption in the ruling is that content moderation works, there is some doubt as to whether content moderation is even effective as a mitigation effort. It is worth noting that prior to this ruling, social media companies had announced changes to their policies on fighting misinformation. For example, in late November of 2022, Twitter announced that it would no longer enforce its COVID misinformation policy, In January of 2023, Meta reinstated Trump's account saying, quote, the risk to public safety has sufficiently receded. And in June, YouTube announced that it no longer will remove videos that falsely claim the 2020 election was fraudulent or stolen. In addition, Meta, Amazon, Alphabet, and Twitter have all drastically cut their internal teams focused on ethics, internet safety, and trust, citing cost concerns. With the advances in AI and increasing sophistication in creating misleading content such as deep fakes, there is growing concern, especially amongst academics and researchers about the threat mis- and disinformation posed not only for the 2024 election cycle and democracy, but also for pressing concerns such as public health and climate change. So how can we address a polluted information ecosystem at a time of significant social divide and erosion of trust?
1: Our guest today is Dr. Sheldon Himmelfarm. Sheldon is the co-founder of the International Panel on the Information Environment, IPIE, an independent global organization dedicated to providing actionable scientific knowledge on threats to our information landscape. He is also the CEO of Peace Tech Lab since 2014, when it spun out from the Center for Innovation at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Sheldon is an award-winning filmmaker, former commentator for the National Public Radio, and author of numerous articles on politics popular culture and conflict he has managed peacebuilding programs in numerous conflicts including bosnia iraq angola liberia macedonia and burundi and received the capital area peacemaker award from american university sheldon holds a doctorate from oxford university and a bachelor's degree in political science from johns hopkins university he has held the visiting or guest scholar positions at the brookings institution harvard university and the Paul H. Nietzsche School for Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Sheldon. Thank
2: you. Nice to be here.
1: So you are the co-founder of the International Panel on the Information Environment, IPIE, along with Dr. Phil Howard, who we've also
2: had on this show.
1: Can you talk a bit about IPIE What and what prompted you and others to create it?
2: Yes, indeed. Um, Well, I'll give you a bit of the origin story, um, and it it goes back to um, the Nobel Prize Summit of 2021, when in my work in the Peace Tech Lab, I had just had uh, multiple experiences wrestling with what I would say is... Not fully appreciated the unprecedented nature of the global information environment in which we live. And by that, I mean this. On the one hand, my lab is producing radio dramas in South Sudan to try to bring people together, to try to um, uh, promote a culture of peace building. And we're working with both Dinka and Nuer tribes in that uh, youngest of countries born on the planet in the last couple of years. And at the same time as we're in our fourth year, third, fourth, fifth year of producing this series, we are at the same time seeing people dragged off of buses because they're from the wrong tribe and being killed. And we're trying to understand what is going on here. What is this phenomena? Because we know the people quite well. We're getting to know them over five years time. What's happening? And what, what our forensics shows us is that in the middle of all this is some idiot sitting in Arlington, Virginia, or sitting in another suburb of another city somewhere else who is from the South Sudanese diaspora and is injecting himself on his laptop into that tribal conflict with vast, hard-hitting hate speech that is pure lies, lies, lies. Very reminiscent, you may recall, back what happened in the 90s in, um, uh, in Rwanda with people using radio. To get neighbor to kill neighbor so I, i've been doing this kind of work for for um better part of three decades but what I, I i was completely taken aback to learn how there can be somebody sitting in another city halfway around the world with complete impunity anonymity having this amount of an, an individual it's not as though it's a government it's an individual having this amount of power thanks to the electrons that rule our lives, um, to, to cause serious, serious deaths there. So that's one incident that I, I was seeing. We were working in Myanmar. Things sim, think, very similar things were happening in Myanmar by government, military, using the platform of Facebook. In Myanmar, Facebook was essentially the internet, and they were manipulating it in order to have the violence against the Rohingya that led to tens of thousands of people being, you know, forced out of their homes and thousands of other people being killed. So that's a pretty dire situation that I'm trying to wrestle with. How, how I, I'm not seeing very strong action being taken to address this problem. At the same time, at a more personal level. A very, very good friend of mine, who is a, a really a legend in in um, industry, a legend in technology, had retired from his career. One day he wakes up, and one line, there is a press report showing up on Bloomberg calling this individual a mole agent for the chinese intelligence services a sleeper agent working inside the united states government and has to be immediately fired First, you have to understand this guy's retired he's all he's doing is consulting and he's consulted for probably three or four presidents of the united states one hit what he knows best he's his technology he, been in technology for decades and decades in a leadership role and he's giving everything back that he can give back as a public servant to wake up and find your entire career being turned into a viral lie that goes immediately from the wire services then onto to twitter where twitter of course being this hotbed of anything anti-chinese you can think of gets tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people going. So folks, what, what, what that, this, these, this confluence of things happening here is one, this was complete utter fiction. And we went and did the forensics on it. You know how it happened? Somebody, an old enemy, somebody had a bone to pick. We were very lucky. We had, we were able to have some very, very strong people trace this thing and uh, in the cybersecurity world. And they found out somebody walks into a shop in London, puts down a couple of hundred bucks. That couple of hundred bucks gets sent to a shop in Pakistan. Shop in Pakistan has an army of people, trolls sitting there creating nonsense in English language posts that goes out first over the English language Pakistani um, wire services And just by the nature of the beast, the way we've built this architecture, you find yourself moving eventually, and I say eventually as though that's a long time, eventually means within hours, it goes from one new service to another new service to another new service and winds up one, Bloomberg, where it suddenly got legitimacy. Now, don't get me wrong. We approached Bloomberg right away and they pulled it down, but the damage has been done. It's already a Twitter firestorm. It's already a man's entire career trashed in a nanosecond, and they um, just imagine waking up to that, thinking this is the twilight of your life, and you're 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 just giving back, and suddenly um, a a you know lie after lie after lies coming out of it. So seeing, I, I was seeing this happening in my peace building world. I was seeing people getting killed. I was seeing individuals being targeted. And I was seeing, by the way, from all of the organizations, so the Peace Tech Lab's job was to work with local organizations in conflict countries. Our motto was we put the right tools in the right hands to build peace. So we would work with local partners, change makers, local NGOs, local governments to help develop Collectively, together, we would think of technology tools, technology strategies, technology training that could help brave organizations that were already working on how to have um, how to have nonviolent elections, how to have um, uh, how to eliminate gender violence, how to fight corruption in their in their societies. We're working with them. They're already doing the most important courageous work. All we're doing is helping them do it more, better, faster with tech, because that's what tech can do. It can be a force multiplier. But we're also seeing those same organizations are day by day, we're hearing about another one and another one and another one and another one one being targeted by some kind of disinformation campaign often by their own governments, by the way, in the global South, that was not infrequent at all, being targeted uh, for a mis- or disinformation campaign that would suddenly, we you know, so uh, my team goes into a country and says, what's your biggest problem? What's keeping you up at night? How can we help with um, where we think technology? And the first things now, there's, there used to be things like, we want to be able to collect data. We want to be able to um, get the word out about a campaign we want to do. Now, the first thing is, we want to know how to defend ourselves against disinformation misinformation, that is setting back our work of the last decade. It's setting us back years. So seeing this in front of me at the time, I honestly was at my wits end. You get to a point as we all do in our, in our lives, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta shift gears. So I completely shifted gears of the peace tech lab from uh, the putting the tech tools and tech strategy into the hands of individuals to thinking through with a lot of very smart people, thinking through what could be done about this problem. I immediately contacted Philip Howard, who had just written the book, Lie uh, Lie Machines, where he catalogs very nicely this phenomena of, uh, I think you've had him on your show in the past before. He cataloged this phenomena of, of um, mis and disinformation, and how it was exploding. Um, and we hosted a panel at the uh, two year ago at that Nobel Prize Summit. So this is coming full circle, and I realize it's a long way to get here. Um, but a, we put on the table for a group of very, very distinguished people that included um, uh, the internet pioneer Vince Cerf. It included Tawakal Carmen, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Catherine Mayer. It included um, Uh, who was the CEO of Wikipedia at the time. And we put this question on the table. Is it possible, do you think, to approach the global information environment, which seems like it's heading over an abyss? It's promoting, it's undermining trust in science. We're watching the the COVID experience and vaccine misinformation, undermining trust in science. What are we going to do when that next pandemic hits? It's undermining trust in institutions. We all just saw the elections happening in the United States, not to mention the elections happening in Brazil, the elections happening in other places. Nobody's trusting their institutions of government. And finally, that point that brought me in here in such, pain, in such a painful way, the hate speech, that we see online, it's undermining trust in in each other. This problem is undermining trust in each other. It felt to me as though the problem was as big, as existential a threat to the future as what we were talking about with the climate. Can we take a similar approach? Can we create something called and IPCC, the International Intergovernmental Panel for the Information of uh, for Climate Change, can we do a version of that for the information environment? Let's discuss. And that started at the Nobel Prize Summit, and I'm, I'm very proud to say that because of the hard work of Phil Howard and several other um, uh, Sebastian Valenzuela and Wendy Chun and many other research scientists, there are now 250 plus research scientists who have come into what we've created called the IPIE, the International Panel for the Information Environment. And really we're running very hard at creating, with the help of I should 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 say, um six to eight, but by the end of the summer, it should be nine. Really wonderful foundation sponsors, fo- uh, foundation sponsors who have made it possible um, for us to stand up this organization. We'll be releasing its two new reports coming out in a few weeks, and to start um, producing the best science that we can to understand this problem um, better. So I- I'll just close off by saying, you know, at, back then when I first was alarmed by it, it seemed like the only solution that I was hearing a lot about was take down, make Facebook take things down faster, make Google take things down faster, redo section 230. That'll be the answer. That'll be the answer. And they had been talking about that for 10 years. And number one, they had been talking about it for 10 years and doing nothing. And number two, You can take down all you want in the United States and that doesn't affect anything that's happening in a global information environment. So I thought that is not the right approach. What is the right approach? And the IPCC is a very good model, not for everything. It's a good model on how some things work and it's a great model on how some things don't work. It took 25 years before the good science became good policy. And clearly we are at where we're at in climate because it took so darn long. And we and that is partly, you know, back to square one, partly as a result of global misin miss and disinformation on that topic.
1: Well I'm I'm feeling that today. I'm feeling that today in particular because the state where I live is currently broken. Um it's massively flooding. Everything is flooded out in Vermont. The the and the capital city is waiting for another wave of flood as they release the dams upstream. So um 100-year flood that happens every decade now. Um, but let's drill into specifically the so, sort of the meat of, of, of some of that. Um, and in a way, climate change more easily lends itself to a scientific approach. I mean, after all, you can measure things like the rise in sea level and correlate cor- being correlated with rising temperatures or the, the crazy weather systems and the, you know, months of drought followed by inundation by rain. But how do you measure trust or compare and contrast the cor- corrosive impact of one, one lie versus another?
2: Uh, it's a great question. And um, I, I, I would be a little more cautious in your opening supposition that climate is easier to quantify because if you look at the history of the IPCC over the last 40 years, they had many of these same sorts of debates. You know, people were working in silos. I'm working on biodiversity. I'm working on the the oceans. I'm working on on carbon. I'm working on this. I'm working on that. And yes, it is certainly more of a physical science world that they're they're involved in, but they also had to grapple mightily with the multidiscipline, cross-discipline nature of climate too. Before, and that's why it took twenty years before they came to a metric that mere mortals could understand, which is, you know, if temperature goes up one and a half degrees, this much of the planet's underwater. If temperature goes up two and a half degrees, this much of the planet is going underwater. And that moves X millions of people. It took a long, long time to get there. And I think, Leslie, in that sense, we're at a very similar place. You can, um, you may not... Um, We do not, and we're not calling for an organization that says, this is truthful, this is not truthful. That is not what the IPIE is going to be about. But we can develop means of, we, we already have this right now. We can say to a platform, hey, you know, last night, 1,000 new accounts popped up. Your, the bots have put out there 50 new messages. Who owns these? Just just be transparent about who owns them so that we can do the forensics. And there's some sort of chain of ownership that we can um, uh, understand. Is this someone who's creating trouble? What's their agenda? And so forth. So there's a lot more transparency that we can have about the algorithms that the platforms are using in order to determine what they show you there's a lot more um uh transparency that can be had around the use of bots by foreign governments who want to try to shape a conversation as we saw happening in the 2016 election here and you can be sure we're doing it in other places as well. I mean, it, it, it. you can have a lot more transparency about that. You can have a lot more conversation, discussion, analysis, good science about what is the role of anonymity in the stack? What is the correlation between anonymity and the bad things That happen out there, the creation of lies, the ability of lies to travel, the ability of people to swallow those lies. These are so so I guess my my quick answer to you, Leslie, is we're at a similarly early stage in trying to do the amount of good science that has to be done before we can answer that very good question that you posed. And and it is. It is. It frankly, it's a North Star question for me. A North Star question for me and for the group. Can we actually manage or or explore, understand the information environment in a, in in a way that's comparable to the way the IPCC did the environment environment? And I'd be the first one to admit the jury is out on it. But I do know there's plenty of indicators. And I, I say this having sat now in numerous, numerous meetings with some of the best research scientists from around the world. And they are all confident that we can get to a much deeper understanding with, um, uh, if we, with the resources Also with the access, I mean, one thing we all know is the last couple of years, talk to academics, the top academics in the world about the research they're doing in this area. And they will, to a person, I've never heard one of them say anything differently than across the last five years, our access as researchers has shrunk. Our access to the back end, to the data, to the algorithms that are being used to create the global information environment. Um, and I believe them, and I think that um, if there's one thing we're able to to possibly reverse, is if you have an organization like ours with a critical mass of research scientists from around the world, global north, global south, highly diverse, working in multiple languages, it's going to make it harder for the companies to have the the kind of positioning they've had when all it is, when the only thing they have to worry about is being called up in front of this regulator or that regulator, who they are very, very adept at running circles around.
0: I want to get back to the issue of transparency with some of these uh, platforms. But first, because IPIE is modeled after the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that was founded in 1988, and just listening to you it sounds like they had to kind of find their way um first working in silos and then trying to find their way to be more of a multidisciplinary approach um and you have gotten that down with ipie you've had over 250 different researchers 55 countries what are the disciplines that are represented and and what are and why those disciplines
2: well, uh, let me emphasize really important point here. I, I'm glad to see that you've you've noticed uh, Alexa, the, the amount of um, diversity we've got because we really are walking the talk here, but we have miles to go. So um, now that we've got sort of our first 300 or so members, um, we're, we're going to shift a little bit in the next in the next year or so um, to fill in gaps in disciplines. But already, as you say, we have computational scientists, data scientists, we have um, social scientists, media, we have um, neuroscientists, we have psychologists, we actually have people who have anthropology backgrounds. So it is very diverse, but we are always looking for, we're already starting, so one of the most uh, gratifying um, things of the last uh, couple of months. Since we announced the launch at the Nobel Prize Summit, we are receiving inbound requests for, will you take a look at this? Or will you take a look at that? And of course, one of the very, very big topics is generative AI and what is the role of generative AI in this and disinformation. And so we are really um, in the process of Identifying and bringing into the IPIE the very best, um, the very best of the best in 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 that those areas. So it's a process, Alexa. It's going to keep going where we build out the ranks, and it's exactly, by the way, what happened in the IPCC experience. The difference, the fundamental difference is their I, the I in IPCC is intergovernmental. The I in our international panel. It, it, the eye is international and it was very premeditated decision on our part, very careful decision on our part after taking lots of advice from people in government. We spoke with folks at the UN, we spoke with um, spoke with folks in in the uh, USG, we spoke with folks in Finland's government, in Norway's government, we spoke with the EU folks and consistently, The answer was prove the concept. Prove the concept that you can approach the information environment in a way analogous to the environment environment before running at the intergovernmental part of it, because that will slow you down. We all know how slow it is to get a consensus out of uh, 200 countries in the United Nations. So this is a way... So so model ourselves after the IPCC in many respects in the way to be a global approach, to be a relentlessly neutral approach, to lead with the science, really lead with the best science possible, but also learn from the IPCC and what it got wrong. And one of the things it got wrong was the speed it took to turn Good science into good policy, um, and um, and so we think we need to do some things. That's why again, choice of international panel rather than intergovernmental. We're raising our funds privately. We're not going around to member states looking for contributions. That could be a that could be um, a lifetime dancing lessons at this point.
1: And and I imagine too that um, I'm going back to the Alexis Opener. I'm pointing out that at least in in the U.S. It has been decided that the government itself shouldn't be messing with content. Another good reason to not start with the governments is that they may not actually be the actors with the most important levers to pull here. So I, I guess I wonder a little bit who do you think are the actors with levers to pull? Or do you think that there are in the same way that the IPCC has one role and the you know implementation of, hopefully, improvements towards dealing with the climate is actually enacted by different parties? Do you think there's room for a different organization or different organizations around the globe to try to take steps to implement uh, approaches to improving things?
2: So I, I think that's a very a great question. And I think it hits on um, two, it, it takes me to two very important places that are points that are equally important. Um, one is we don't know what the shape of a, a long-term IPIE ultimately will take. Because it is also so different from anything else when you're trying to measure a global information environment. And it could be a format that is similar to an IPCC in an organizational structure, um, where they are now having all of the different actors At the table, you even see the fossil fuel industry plays a big role now inside of the IPCC. It's become a much more inclusive um, uh, over the years, over lots and lots of years. We're we're not at that point. We're starting somewhere earlier, and we don't know um, what organizational, um, what what's going to be the smartest organizational structure to ensure that again, good science becomes good policy. Is it going to be a separate organization that owns the distribution, that that owns the advocacy? Is it going to be a separate organization? But, Leslie, I think there's almost, I think you've really actually teed up an even more interesting question that's kind of a precursor question to that one, which is defining the problem. I honestly think there's a lot of work that has to be done to understand what problem we are trying to solve for it's an it, i i know in my heart of hearts watching what all the things i told you about earlier in myanmar and south sudan in my in our own backyard in, in january all that we are living in an information environment that is unprecedented in human history and if we don't learn to manage that environment um we do it at our peril we it really is becoming an existential problem we must manage that that unprecedented quality that can make it impossible to solve the next pandemic or impossible to have a trust trust between nations when you have to solve the nuclear uh, have a discussion over using nuclear weapons or if you've got um you know it's there's just so many things where we've got to have trust built into the infrastructure of the future. And um, we've got to wrestle that to the ground. So we have to define clearly the problem. This is not just about um, uh, truth, um, but it is as much about trust. And that will have a lot to do with shaping those institutions that we're talking about in the future for, um, uh, managing, the, managing the problem will never solve the problem.
1: Well, I, I am glad that you brought it back to trust and not truth because um, as you were just outlining the, you know, what problem are we trying to solve? I kept thinking the goal cannot be simply to, as you said earlier, shut everything down or turn things off or become the ministry of truth because then it's just a that's just a different way of weaponizing the information environment. Exactly.
0: You know, on the other hand, there seems to be an inherent assumption, this court case and the cries of the Republicans that the conservative voices are being shut down. There seems to be an inherent assumption that content moderation is effective, that you know, taking down posts, uh, as you said, mentioned before, is effective. But what have you found in terms of some of the researchers that you've talked to? Are, are we placing a great amount of... <laughs> To, you know to be funny trust in content moderation disproportionate amount and uh, if it's not working why is it not working
2: well i think there's it's we're we're about to release two new reports in the next coming weeks so i don't want to steal the thunder of the the teams that have been working on those but i can i, I a little bit of a taste of those reports are about this specific issue said that. Um yes indeed the flavor of the last 3 years has been about content moderation. If only you had more more people to be reviewing content, taking it down faster, things would be a lot better. But it's a, it's symptomatic of where we are in this space. We've done so little and and we the IPIE has just completed looking at 5000 peer reviewed journals from around the world so the top peer reviewed journals that talk about countermeasures to mis and disinformation and the conclusions are going to be very interesting but 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 they 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 talk about one the lack of rigor in the science around making recommendations on countermeasures so yes content moderation is always at the top of the list as is media literacy as is Um, Then you talk about, there's many, many strategies, content labeling, um, uh, corrective measures. There's a lot of strategies, but there's very, very little good, solid, peer-reviewed analysis of these countermeasures. And what our initial finding is that, in fact, content labeling and corrective measures is more of a scientific consensus around their effectiveness than there is around some of these other measures. Bottom line, a lot more research is is needed. Second of all, 90% or uh, the vast, vast majority of the research, of our understanding of what works or what doesn't work is on the basis of English language research um, done in Western cultures whereas huge amounts, the preponderance of myths and disinformation is happening in other languages and in other cultures. And we have very, very little insight into that. So so I would hesitate to say content moderation is out, content labeling is in, but I can say that we can't find very good evidence to suggest that we can put our hand on our heart and say, Platforms invest heavily in, in, in um, content moderation. Governance rewrite that section 230 so, to, to make sure they're responsible for pulling stuff down fast. We honestly don't feel that we can make those kinds of recommendations at this point. What is becoming clear from our first um, global survey of 5,000 peer-reviewed journal articles on this topic and a global expert survey that we've surveyed people from m- multiple countries around the world um, w- on this topic is that the, the dearth of, of good solid um, science is pretty obvious.
0: And you know, just an observation, but having watched this topic and particularly content moderation, and you mentioned this before, It may be that by the time content moderation teams kick in, the damage is already done. In other words, the lie has already been uh, spread so wide that now when you're taking it down, you're doing sort of uh, serving the scene of the accident as opposed to preventing it, you know?
2: Yeah. 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 And, and it's very, I think, I think it's fair to say, although again, I would really, this is why I'm, I'm very happy to be part of an organization. And I want to emphasize this is right now we're at 250, 300 research scientists, self-organized to step in and do what regulators and legislators have really failed and companies have failed yeah. to do up to now. And I so I don't, I don't want to prejudge what they're going to be saying at the end of the day about this, but it's pretty clear. This is a, supply side and demand side problem right yep. you can make people better informed about how what should what to share what not to share how you know you can social inoculation theory is very turned up some very exciting results around how um people playing games can spot fake news better than people who don't play those particular games um that's an interesting area that needs more research Um, But I also have to I I want to emphasize I use the word research and science a lot here. And I just want to make sure um, everybody who who might be listening understands we are so, so aware that we don't have time on our side to be doing this kind of in-depth, careful, you know what I mean? Which is why we formed this thing. We launched it at the Nobel Prize Summit in May. And here we are three months later releasing our first two new reports and we'll be we'll, we're committed to releasing more new research uh, along these lines that can influence policy on a really regular cadence. And also to running very hard at that problem that we all were talking about a few minutes ago it was like, can you create an index for what is a healthy, Inf- global information environment that we can manage against similar to what was created in the in the climate field about you know the rise of temperature being you know your go-to metric and you know as well as many 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 other things. can we develop something like that and that and that will take an investment of the IpiE easily that's that's two or three years to try to do that. But again, it took 20 years to do it in the climate field.
1: Well, sadly, time is not on our side either for this episode. It's been wonderful to discuss this topic. And just, I mean, I can't, I don't think we can even say this is scratching the surface, but it's certainly surfacing interesting areas for further discussion. And maybe just as a parting thought for our listeners, um, what should people expect to see then from the IPIE in the next 12 to 18 months? I mean, given how much you've already done in three months.
2: Yeah. I, well, I hope that, you know what does success look like for us in the next in the next eighteen months? Success looks like producing, continuing to produce um, uh, uh, scientific reports that are actionable, that are that, that move very quickly from the science to the policy discussion. That's very very important. Um, you should expect to see continued expansion from three, we, we're now close to 300 research scientists. We hope we'll be close to 500 um, very quickly. It's resource dependent, obviously. You know, we, we actually could be thousands if we chose to because there's that many research scientists who want to participate, but we have to have the resources to be able to optimize their work and manage them effectively. So continued growth in the membership, continued um, uh, production of important reports, and you know i hope uh, what what i the, the the real big win would be can we make inroads on this idea of creating a, a measurable index that allows both governments policymakers and ordinary people to really understand the magnitude of this problem. I really think that's, and I want to thank you guys for putting together. I've heard some of the other podcasts you've done in this area, and it is really important because the zeitgeist out there is, this is everybody's problem and nobody's problem. The zeitgeist out there is propaganda has been around as long as time so why are you guys tearing your hair out? Now, I don't have any hair to tear out. So I, I want to tell those people, this is not that problem. This is a new problem of our own making that is unprecedented for all the reasons we've talked about earlier. And we absolutely we ignore it at our at our peril, um, and we just can't afford to do it. so. I hope. Bottom line, Les, I hope we're going to see a sense that maybe we're managing away from the abyss.
0: I hope we get to cover some of the reports that you are um, talking about. And, you know, both Leslie and I have been really interested in this topic, fundamentally, because without trust, without discerning what is truth, we don't have a chance to solve any of the problems that are facing us from the very small uh, to the very large, uh, from how much we trust our electoral system all the way to what are we actually going to do about climate change? I mean, Leslie is feeling that now in her home
2: state. It's coming home to roost, literally. And we haven't—we didn't even get into the conversation about at the one time we're undermining truth, we're undermining trust in institutions, in people, and in, in science. On the other hand, we are creating livelihoods out of misinformation. Yes. People are creating jobs that are based upon spreading lots and lots of misinformation. And that's not being talked about, except there was a great ProPublica report last year showing how much, how much Google placing ads on sites that spread misinformation enriches those sites, enriches yeah. Google. It's we're creating a misinformation economy at the same time. So if you're undermining all the, all the trust that we need and you're, you're making it worth people's while to do more of that. Look what we're doing. Oh, my God. Well, we'll put
0: in a link. Um, we actually covered this with Phil Howard about the industrialization of misinformation, how, um, how there is an industry. And some countries like Philippines are really capitalizing on it by creating whole industries that are, quote, unquote, P.R., but effectively are there to create stories and plant stories as trolls and distribute them. So we'll put it a link to that report because that report was very, very eye-opening and probably was a foundation of some of the the thinking that went into uh, your IPIE efforts.
2: Oh, absolutely. Phil's book, Lime Machines, is a great uh, analysis of, of just this problem, how it's gone way beyond just you know, propaganda by yeah. governments in wartime to an industry.
1: So clearly, we could talk for hours, but for yeah. now, I'm going to say thank you so much for joining us. It's been fascinating.
2: My pleasure. Very, very nice to meet you both. And uh, I, I look forward to talking again.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rodd. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. Techsequences, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.